Hey guys, Nick and I have been using this really awesome resource to help us with our Creogs Over Coffee creation. Check out the OBG Project at www.obgprojects.com. They have an awesome collection of multiple resources reviewing the latest practice bulletins, guidelines, and randomized control trials, as well as interesting papers that you might just not look at every day. One thing that we've also signed up is something called OBG First. So this is a subscription that they have where you are able to get the latest research summary as well as um, the latest clinical guidelines or summary sent straight to your phone via email or text message. As well as going online to their website, you can save your favorite items to your own personalized library or bookshelf, as they call it. The wonderful thing is that Nick and I are about to be fourth-year residents, and if you're like us, you can actually get this subscription for one year for completely free. All you have to do is go on their website. Um, we will put the link in our website post. You can go on. All you need to do is your name, email address, and the name of your program so they can verify that you're a fourth-year resident, and you can have OBG First absolutely free for one year. They update every single day, so they move a little bit faster than Faye and I do with our weekly episodes, but definitely supplement your studying with them. They're really awesome. Okay, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. Faye is not with us here tonight because she got stuck working, but okay, we're going to fly solo. Welcome back to Creogs Over Coffee. Today again we have with us our lovely um, fairy god midwives, senior teaching associate at the Warren Alpert Brown School of Medicine and certified nurse midwife Linda Steinhart, and clinical teaching associate and certified nurse midwife Liz Kettle. Welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having us. Right, so we're going to talk again today about cardiotechography in part two of this series. So what are we going to talk about today, y'all? Great. So um, in part one, as you may recall, we reviewed the terminology of electronic fetal heart rate monitoring, probably better described uh, as cardiotochography, or how about CTG for the purposes of this podcast, and how to interpret our findings. We discussed how to assign tracings as category one, two, or three. As you likely recall, category one is reliably predictable of normal fetal acid-base balance. And three is potentially ominous, requiring an immediate action plan. However, the majority, or about 80% of all of the tracings we encounter in laboring women are in the gray zone, which we call category two. They do not meet the criteria for one or three and require increased surveillance and attention. It's important to remember too that the categories we're talking about here are reserved for labor and not for antepartum testing. We just want to remind everybody that CTG is not a diagnostic tool and cannot predict impending fetal injury. It is known to have a high false positive rate. However, it is a great screening tool and has exceptional negative predictive value. Or said another way, a category one tracing virtually precludes ongoing hypoxic injury at the time it's observed. Before we delve further into how we manage CTG abnormalities, let's try to remember the causes of what we're seeing as knowing the cause may help inform our management. One easy aid is the acronym VEAL-CHOP. So write out V-E-A-L and C-H-O-P next to each other vertically. 
and you have B for variable deceleration lined up with C for cord compression. E for early deceleration goes with H for head compression. A for acceleration goes with O for oxygenation or OK. And L for late deceleration goes with P, placental insufficiency. So remember, veal, chop. So now that we've refreshed our memories about the vocabulary and how to interpret CTG, let's talk about what to do. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great to me, sounds Linda. great. So we have a tracing with a normal baseline, moderate variability, accelerations, and no decelerations. What do we need to do? Nothing. This is an example of a category one tracing, the normal tracings we love to see. And say if our tracing lacked accelerations, so would that still count as a category one tracing? Yes, that is correct. And what if there were early D cells? Would that still count as category one? Yes, I'm so glad to see you're paying attention. In category one, all you need is a normal baseline, moderate variability, and no variable or late D cells. Okay, let's go see our next patient. This CTG shows absent baseline variability and recurrent late deceleration. This is a category three tracing. It would also be category three if there were recurrent variable decelerations, a bradycardia, and or a sinusoidal pattern. Remember, in NICHD speak, recurrent means that they occur greater than or equal to 50% of the time. Even though CTG is a screening and not a diagnostic test, a Category 3 tracing is the best predictor of abnormal fetal acid base status at the time of delivery and requires immediate attention because a Category 3 tracing is associated with fetal acidemia about 25% of the time and or increased risk of neonatal encephalopathy, cerebral palsy, and neonatal acidosis. But I know you guys said earlier that the predictive value of cardiotechography is so poor. So what exactly are we supposed to do with these Category 3 tracings? Do we expedite the delivery by moving to C-section right away? No. First, we attempt intrauterine resuscitation. What exactly do you mean by that? We can resuscitate the fetus before it's born? Sure. We'll start with the most basic of interventions and progress to the more involved. And it's important to note here that we often initiate multiple measures at once, since it's often not clear what the problem is, making fixing it even more challenging. So first, we can reposition the laboring woman to pretty much any position different from the one that she's in, because we really don't exactly know where the cord is being compressed in the case of variable decelerations, or why the placenta isn't optimally perfused in the case of late decelerations. It's sort of like moving a snow globe. The contents of the globe shift depending on how it's positioned. The second thing we typically try is an IV fluid bolus to see if increasing the maternal blood volume improves placental and therefore fetal perfusion. This can be particularly helpful in a woman who develops a category 2 or 3 CTG immediately following epidural placement. Maternal hypotension is one of the most common side effects from the epidural anesthesia, and fetuses can be very sensitive to maternal hypotension. Third, we take an especially close look at the contraction pattern. If the patient is receiving Pitocin, it's an easy thing to turn off and has a relatively short half-life of about three to five minutes. Sometimes turning the Pitocin off or down will result in fetal resuscitation. If there are more than five contractions in 10 minutes, averaged over 30 minutes, then you can diagnose tachycystole, which could be the culprit in the case of a category two or three tracing. If there is no Pitocin to turn off, 
then tocolytic medications like terbutaline may be used. As an aside, we typically treat tachycystole only if there are associated fetal heart rate abnormalities. Number four, in some institutions, supplemental oxygen will be given to the laboring woman routinely regardless of her O2 sats. However, this practice is somewhat controversial as most laboring women have a normal oxygen saturation and it is not known if maternal hyperoxygenation may even be harmful due to increased free radical activity. And number five, we may consider the use of amnioinfusion, which involves placing an intrauterine pressure catheter, IUPC, in the uterus and running fluid with the goal of reducing cord compression. Placement of an IUPC requires that the woman's membranes are ruptured and it is thought only to be useful in the setting of recurrent variable B cells because they are associated with cord compression. Use of amnioinfusion has been shown to significantly decrease recurrence of variable decelerations and thereby decrease the rate of C-sections for category two and three tracings overall. Okay, so if these resuscitative measures we just talked about are unsuccessful and say our cardiotocography remains in this category three group, it's time to move towards delivery. Is there a specific time frame that we need to be kind of thinking about with respect to moving towards delivery? Great question. There's no single recommendation for a time frame. Historically, 30 minutes from decision to incision has been considered safe and reasonable. However, evidence doesn't really support this threshold. In one study of almost 3,000 women who had cesarean deliveries for emergent indications, Investigators found 30% of the deliveries began greater than 30 minutes after the decision without an increase in adverse neonatal outcomes. In high-risk pregnancies or conditions such as morbid obesity, eclampsia, cardiopulmonary compromise, or hemorrhage, sometimes maternal stabilization or additional surgical preparation must be made before we can safely proceed with the cesarean. Still, once the decision is made, delivery should be done as quickly as is safely feasible. Okay, so that sounds reasonable. There's a Category 3 tracing we can't resuscitate. We proceed to delivery. But as you guys have already said, the majority of tracings we will see in labor are in the Category 2, the, the gray zone, so to speak. We can use the same resuscitative measures, but when and how do we decide whether to intervene with an expedited delivery? Another great question, Nick. In an American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology clinical opinion from 2013, Clark et al. proposed a very helpful algorithm for the management of the Category 2 CTG. Unfortunately, it's difficult to show an algorithm on a podcast, but we'll talk through it briefly. The clinical logic becomes clear and easy to apply when we're caring for these patients, and it quickly becomes second nature as, again, this is what we see 80% of the time. Exactly. So pending that you're seeing some reassurance, whether it's in the form of accelerations and or moderate variability, the woman can safely continue to labor as long as she's making progress in either the active phase of labor or the second stage of labor. This makes sense, right? Someone in latent phase who is remote from delivery or who is not making adequate progress in the active phase or second stage is not a great candidate to continue laboring with a Category 2 tracing. In the case of a poor progress in the second stage with the Category 2 tracing, assisted vaginal delivery with a vacuum or forceps may also be an option. It is suggested that when continuing to expectantly manage a Category 2 tracing, we reassess every 30 minutes to evaluate whether or not it is safe to continue. 
In addition to considering progress and stage in labor, it's also important to consider the clinical factors that may also be contributory. Are there reasons to suspect placental insufficiency or significant cord compression that may make this particular fetus more prone to the development of acidosis? Okay, so I get it. If we're managing some of the conditions like preeclampsia, diabetes, fetal growth restriction with a category two tracing, we may decide to proceed sooner to expedited delivery compared to a patient for whom we can't identify any risk factors. Exactly. One more thing before we leave this topic, a bit more on variability. Because variability is so critical in our CTG category assignment and therefore our management, it is important to spend a few moments delving into some of the subtleties here. We're hoping that the variability of our listeners has not been reduced to minimal, which can happen in the setting of... A sleep cycle. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So if the loss of variability is due to a sleep cycle, then how long could we expect it to last before we worry that it could be due to another cause? A fetal sleep cycle generally lasts about 20 minutes, but can be as long as an hour. Moderate variability should return when the fetus wakes up. Variability is similarly affected by some medications, such as narcotics, opioids, corticosteroids, betamethasone, but not dexamethasone, and magnesium sulfate. Some of the same resuscitative measures we discussed earlier, maternal repositioning and IV fluid bolus, may also be useful in restoring moderate variability. One additional trick we use to try to achieve improved variability and occasionally elicit accelerations is performing something called fetal scalp stimulation. Performing fetal scalp stimulation is relatively straightforward. The examiner stimulates the fetal vertex by prodding it during a digital exam. If the patient's membranes are ruptured and additional vaginal exams are to be avoided, vibroacoustic stimulation can be used over the maternal abdomen. It is important to note that this should be performed when the fetal heart rate is at its baseline rate and not during a deceleration. If no acceleration is achieved with fetal scalp stimulation or vibroacoustic stimulation and the variability remains minimal and we cannot otherwise explain it or resolve it, then this could be indicative of fetal acidemia and may need to be recategorized as a Category 3 tracing. Well, super. Liz, Linda, thank you guys very much for yet another awesome overview of cardiotocography and how to deal with it. It's our pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Nick. So we'll go ahead and summarize all the key points from today's talk. So again, we're talking today about managing cardiotocography, these category two and category three tracings. We started out with a little bit of a discussion on how cardiotocography has an excellent predictive value for reassuring things, but not a great predictive value for non-reassuring things. We then talked about the VLCHOP acronym for the pathophysiology of different things we can see. Um, and we'll have that posted on our website just as a refresher for everybody. We then moved through kind of discussions of in uterine resuscitation. So we talked primarily about five different things that you can do. Repositioning, an IV fluid bolus, taking a look at the contraction pattern to assess for tachycystole, in some institutions in some places using supplemental oxygen therapy, as well as finally an amnioinfusion. Next, we talked about time intervals and noted that there's no real evidence base, but to note that when you have a tracing that worries you, you should try these resuscitative measures, and if they're not working, at some point you should proceed to expedited delivery. Finally, we go over the algorithm from Clark et al. that we'll also have posted on our website on how to manage a Category 2 tracing. 
Again, we'll save the nitty gritty for your review on the website, but trust us, it's an excellent resource to take a look at. The bottom line is that when you have a category two tracing that you're expectantly managing, you wanna document progress and make sure you reassess every 30 minutes to evaluate whether it's safe or not to continue. All right, so once again, this is Nick, and this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy our podcast, go ahead and go on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online at www.creogsovercoffee.com where we've got some great resources or you can reach out to us. You can find us also on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, or you can support us on Patreon for some cool swag or a shout-out on the show www.patreon.com slash Coffee. Have a suggestion for the show or picked up a mistake that we made in our previous podcast? Go ahead and send us an email at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>